It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello. I'm John Lennage, and this is Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. Across the road from the pub I used to frequent in London's fashionable King's Cross district where I used to live, there's another building that used to be a pub. It's it's not a pub anymore. No. It's, uh, it's still very crowded on Friday evenings, but that's because it's a mosque. I always thought that was quite interesting that, you know, a, a pub in London had been turned into a mosque. And it was, you know, surrounded by other pubs, frankly. But this, this, this old pub building being used for a completely different purpose. And one day I was just wandering past and they were doing an open day. And I'd never been in there, obviously. Not really my thing, Islam. And I thought, you know, this is, this is my neighbourhood. I'm curious about what it might be like inside and to have a chat with guys in the community. So I, I popped in and... It's a bit sad, actually. I got the impression I was... I don't know if I was the only person to go in that day, but there certainly hadn't been many, and there were a couple of guys standing around looking a bit distraught, at, like, you know, trying to open open their doors to the community and finding out the community didn't really want to know. But anyway, they were they were nice enough. They you know, showed me around, gave me some literature, and so I got to see the inside, the inside of a mosque. But it's really the only time I've done that, and it kind of strikes me that this is... This is one of the ways in which the landscape of urban Britain has changed very much the last few decades. You know, churches and cathedrals and so on are obviously very core to, to the layout of our towns and cities and have been for, for a thousand years or more. But now there's these places of worship for other religions springing up. And, you know, if you live in a big, diverse city like London or Manchester, you probably pass these places every day. But they're not part of the urban fabric in the same way. You don't go inside them. You don't think about them. So when a guy called Baham Wazir, who wrote a very fine piece about mosques and the changing face of urban Britain for the New Statesman last year, suggested that we go and visit the new one being built on Mill Road in Cambridge, I thought that sounded like quite a cool thing to do. So that's what I did this weekend. We went to a mosque and we recorded a podcast there. And you're going to hear all about that shortly. Just before I move on from King's Cross, though, I've just, just it's a measure of, of the diversity of, of that district in London more generally is that two doors down from the mosque, also opposite my, my local pub as was, there was a place called Oscars, which seemed to be like, there's no really nice way of putting it. It was a sort of pornographic cinema. And I couldn't really work out why there was a pornographic cinema in this day and age, you know, with the internet and so on, until someone told me it was the gay pornographic cinema, and that painted the picture. I've not been to an open day there. I don't think it's there anymore, sadly. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop digging, really. I'm just going to stop digging. Anyway, 
we're, we're off to Cambridge to look at a mosque today. We will break into this, as ever, with, with a segment from our friends at the Centre for Cities, where this week Paul Swinney is going to tell us all about the importance of skills in cities. But either side of that, we're going to be in Cambridge in a mosque. Here we go. So I am here in a room at the side of the rather beautiful new Cambridge Mosque, which is uh, nearing completion now, with the chair of the Cambridge Mosque Trust, Tim Winter, and the writer and journalist, Berham Wazir. And we are going to talk about this project and also what, what role mosques play in modern British society and you know, a little bit of a, a short history as well. But Tim, if we could start with you, tell us, about, tell us about the building we're sitting in right now. Tell us how it came to be and give us a, a brief verbal tour, perhaps. Well, it's been a long journey. Obviously, Cambridge is a major global hub and attracts a very uh, multi-religious, multi-ethnic mix of often quite skilled individuals because of the university and the science park. And that's actually been happening for more than 100 years. There's uh, evidence that Muslims were meeting for prayer here before the First World War. But as yet, they haven't succeeded in creating a single purpose-built mosque. So at the moment, Muslims in Cambridge, there may be five or 6,000 Muslims resident here, plus a student floating population, are, as it were, camping out in converted chapels, former terraced houses and so forth. So this is obviously an idea whose time has come. Cambridge needs, as part of its global infrastructure, facilities for people from a wide variety of cultures. So it's an idea that really has been on my mind for decades, I guess. But it was 2008 when we bought this chunk of land after various complex battles with uh, developers. And then we held a design competition. The winning design was picked. It went through the planning hoops. And we started construction, I suppose, two and a half years ago. And actually, you've come at the ideal time because we're more or less complete, but it's still quiet because we're not letting mm. users in yet. So what you see is what they will get. And it's actually kind of sigh of relief time after over a decade of trying to get this very ambitious project off the ground. But here we are. Can I, we'll talk about the building itself a little bit more in a second. But can I ask before we move on how you personally came to be sort of involved in... In, in this project, in this community? Well, I did my first degree in Cambridge in the early 80s, which was in Arabic and Islamic studies. I'd already converted to Islam. And it became evident that the communities here were struggling to get the resources together in order to build a, a proper facility, even though the community was growing. Just to give you an example, the first festival prayer among the Muslims which I attended in Cambridge must have been in 1980. And we thought we maybe had 40 people present. Last year, in the sports hall, which is what they use at the moment, it was well over 3,000. So there's been an exponential growth. And it's obviously long overdue that Cambridge should have a, a proper mosque. And so I got my act together, even though my natural home is not the world of builders and architects, but uh, quiet research in the university library. I thought it would be interesting if I tried my hand at actually trying to get this thing off the ground. I should say it's an absolutely stunning building. You come in through gardens with a fountain and there's a sort of high ceilinged atrium. Uh, there's sort of, I don't even know what you call them, these, sort of wood, these wooden pillars that look a bit like, sort of, that branch out like trees supporting the whole thing and natural light all the way through. It's an absolutely glorious building. It is, and everybody who sees it, and one of the interesting things you can do in this part of Cambridge now is just to stand outside and watch everybody's head turn as they cycle past, and little kids goggling at it, and people on the buses which stop outside staring and trying to figure out what it is. And it, it's actually been really heartening in our times of polarisations that local communities have been enormously 
hospitable and embracing of the project. They recognise that Muslims of Cambridge need a decent place to pray. And they're also very happy that we're turning it into a kind of community hub. It's not just a kind of bunker for Muslim difference. It's conceived to be a hospitable home for the wider local community. So actually, we've had quite a few donations from non-Muslim neighbours, for instance, which is great news. People are very happy that we have put the kind of public bits of the facility at the front end. So this part of Cambridge, which is basically little Victorian railway terraces, lacks a lung, a green space. So we've set the building as far to the back of the site as we possibly can in order to give ourselves, as it were, a front garden and to allow passers-by just to stop and to breathe and to uh, enjoy the garden which we have at the front. And then you come in through the portico space, which is also a public space, into the atrium. This area, which we're sitting in at the moment, is going to be a cafeteria, and the other side is a teaching room, places for exhibitions, for lectures, just a kind of gift, really, to the wider community. The ideology of the building is, obviously, it's ultimately a mosque and it's a place specifically for Muslim worship, but we have tried as hard as we can to build bridges and to make all local residents, and even tourists, uh, people are coming to visit the building from far field now, feel that they too have a stake in it, that they belong to it, and that there's things going on in the mosque that they can relate to as well. So as an exercise in uh, what Whitehall would call community cohesion, I think already, even though we're not open yet, it, it's been a roaring success. Brian, you wrote a, a fantastic piece for the New Statesman uh, last year about kind of the, the changing face of the British mosque and the changing role they play, from which I learned that this kind of project, the idea of a purpose-built mosque, is actually a relatively recent phenomenon, right? Yeah, I think, so initially when, when Muslims first started moving to this country in large numbers in the 50s and 60s, in places like Glasgow or Bradford or Leeds, for example, like people initially used any spaces they could, you know, like if people were working as bus conductors, they would pray in bus shelters. But the idea of like getting large amounts of kind of money together from the community, buying land and then building large mosques that can be visited by, you know, a thousand people at a time, really didn't start until the 1980s or late 70s. And it's uh, a sort of bottom-up thing, right? Like, I mean, the word church can mean, you know, a building, but it can also mean the institution responsible for the building. The word mosque doesn't have that flexibility, it's specifically the building, because there isn't kind of a, a, that kind of institutional backing, is that right? Well, yeah, that's true. Although, actually, you know, mosques end up, you know, historically have functioned as all kinds of spaces over the years. Like, it's very rare that a mosque is used just for worship. That's obviously its primary function. But people have conducted, like, weddings, you know, when people pass away, their body usually passes through the mosque. You yeah, have, like, I should say that one of the things that kind of struck me on the tour that I wasn't expecting is when you guys took me into the back room and said, this is the mortuary. I said, oh, well, there's true. a table to put a body on. I, didn't, I did not see that part coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that is a kind of multidimensional aspect of this, which I think most Britons don't really understand. Tim, would you agree? Yeah, they think of a mosque just as a place of worship and other social things happening elsewhere. But increasingly, particularly in the Western world, you find that a mosque is very much a kind of community hub. So in our mosque in Cambridge, we've designed this cafeteria area, exhibition space. Uh, there's also a treatment room specifically for the women of the community that do things like reflexology and massage and other traditional remedies, herbal 
healing, quite big in a lot of particularly subcontinental uh, Muslim communities. So they'll come here for that. Uh, there is the mortuary that you mentioned. Uh, there'll be spaces for kids, area for them to play at the back. So yeah, it's uh, a social centre. And I think potentially one that will play a kind of liberative role for many people in communities where they feel that there isn't sufficient infrastructure around that can affirm and recognize them in their own cultural integrity. So we're expecting to see quite a lot of older people coming. We're fully wheelchair accessible, so people with, with, with disabilities We'll be at home here, hearing loops, charging points for disability scooters and so forth. And I should also mention huge facilities for uh, female worshippers. One of the many Achilles heels of British mosque design is that very often it provides little or no accommodation for women. But uh, all the signs are that more and more women are insisting on coming to the mosque and being part of the action. And we've tried to accommodate that possibly more than any other significant mosque project in Britain to date. The fact that there are multi-faith facilities is obviously quite important, but also at a time of like, after 10 years of austerity, the fact that these places are now open where people can come, have a cup of coffee, meet other people, to me that seems to tackle a bunch of other issues apart from just religion. Yes, I think that's right. And one thing that we realised quite early on in the process was that we were not just designing a structure to keep members of a particular denomination out of the rain on Fridays, but that we had to make a very large statement that would represent our take on big questions, the East-West relation, tradition and modernity, Muslims and non-Muslims, Islam and Britain. Many of the big, difficult, neurologic headline issues of modern Britain have to be dealt with in the way you structure and design and articulate the spaces within a mosque. The gender issue is just one of them. But being hospitable to uh, visitors is another. The kind of recreational and therapeutic spaces that we supply is, is another example. So we're hoping that it's not just a place of worship, but also somehow a symbol set in stone of the community's desire to to reach out, to embrace, to be hospitable, just to get on with life and to be part of normal life in modern Britain rather than treat it as something problematic or exceptional. Something else that struck me when you were showing me around was, I mean, sticking with the gender point, like you've given a lot of thought to like that women from different branches of Islam may have different ideas of like how visible they want to be or or how they may want to sort of interact with, with the building. And that's kind of, you had to give a lot of thought to kind of how to create the maximum flexibility there. That's right, because on the one hand, we wanted to include the women as much as possible. But on the other hand, we couldn't be doctrinaire and impose a particular ideology about gender on such an enormously diverse congregation. So we went to the women in the community and we polled them and we found out that there's no consensus on what they want. They know what they don't want, but they don't know what they do want. It's a little bit like Brexit and Parliament in certain ways. There was no consensus for any particular solution to the issue of gender, which is quite a big issue in designing traditional places of worship. So some of them said, we will not come to your mosque if we are at all visible. Often older conservative people from the subcontinent, some of the old Bangladeshi aunties are emphatic that that's their understanding of the tradition. We do want them to come to the mosque. On the other hand, there's a lot of women, sometimes younger women, who find the idea of complete seclusion offensive and awkward and told us that they wouldn't come to the mosque if they couldn't see everything that was going on and feel part of the action. Women with children, sometimes noisy children, where do we accommodate that? So... 
Uh, instead of saying you will certainly accept one particular take on the endlessly vexed question of Islam and women, we said we have a huge range of different spaces and you can sit wherever you feel most comfortable. So as yet that seems to have worked and most of those who are grumbling about seclusion issues so far tend to be the male mosque users rather than the females. Mm -hmm. The women are really very happy and that's been one of the most heartening things to see. I should say it's the, the main prayer hall is, is a single space which is going to have some movable screens to kind of divide mm -hmm. it into in two. And, and also screens of variable heights so that like you, so yep. that women on one side can decide how visible they want to be to a certain extent. That's right. It, it's such a diverse community. Cambridge, unlike some other conurbations in England, doesn't have a majority Muslim demography of any kind. If you go to Bradford, and you can be pretty sure that most people have cultural expectations shaped by a particular part of Kashmir or wherever. But in Cambridge, we don't have a majority Muslim demography. We crunched the census returns and we found that we have over 60 different nationalities here. There's a Kazakh community. There's a Latin American Muslim convert community here. There are African-American convert airmen who come from the US air bases in East Anglia. There's a Chinese Muslim community here. It's so diverse. And actually that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because it meant we weren't constrained to follow any particular geographic norm and we could start thinking afresh. And there's a lot of sort of green features built into the architecture, right? Like there's a lot of natural light and so on. Yeah, uh, the idea is for this not to be quite a zero carbon building, but to be a trendsetter in terms of how you design in an environmentally responsible way that we hope other big projects in Cambridge will take note of. Climate change is particularly alarming to Muslim countries because of the geography. They're in countries that are already hot. Places like Pakistan, Egypt, Algeria can't afford climate change the way maybe we could. So, for instance, in 30 years I can grow oranges in my garden in Newmarket. In 30 years' time, my friend who grows oranges now in Egypt will not be growing oranges. So it's a huge crisis facing the Muslim world in particular. But by focusing on the green issue, I think we bring communities together because the global warming and climate change, raised sea levels, don't pay any attention to national boundaries or political ideologies. We're all in it together. So I think religion should be starting to lead the charge uh, in defense of the environment. So we've got some of the spiffy new technologies here. We've got natural light throughout the building. We don't need to switch the lights on during the day. The timber is from sustainably managed forest, so it's already done some carbon capturing in the process of, of growing. We have photovoltaic arrays on the roof. We have rainwater harvesting. We have recycling of ablution water in the toilets. We have a passive ventilation. We have sedum roofs. Uh, we've got an air source heat pump. So we've got most of the cutting-edge technologies actually in this building, and it's all up and running. And I hope that's one reason why people will come and look at the building. We've already got school groups booked to take a look, and it's not just about making the RE syllabus a little bit more interesting, but it's about how religion can help with some of the problems that everybody's facing, whatever their religious interests. So, so I should say on the ablution facilities, like you kind of imagine just kind of like, you know, dingy public toilet spaces, they look like bloody spas in there. Uh, well, I wouldn't yeah. quite say that. We don't have the uh, plunge pool yet or the, the, <laughs> the jacuzzi, but yeah, it looks nice. And a Turkish company generously donated all of those quite upscale ceramics on the walls and the floor. That helped a lot. But yeah, we want it to be a very civilised experience. Your typical British mosque often is a little bit basic. There's towels hanging on the walls. It's kind of humid. Maybe there's a smell of socks. 
It's overcrowded. In our facility, we want people to feel that this ablution that Muslims perform before worship is actually a beautiful and cleansing and refreshing thing to do, and that the space reflects that. Mm -hmm. So we've got planting in there, for instance, and natural light coming from above. So it even has a kind of glass house feel to it. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So I'm here again with Paul Swinney, head of policy at the Centre for Cities. You know, Paul, it feels like only five minutes since we recorded the last of these segments. It's like time flies. We have so much fun when we do it. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. So this time we are going to talk about inclusive growth. It's one of of the, not quite buzzwords, it's two words, isn't it? But buzz phrase of our time. Uh, Everyone's banging on about inclusive growth, meaning like, you know, there is this sense abroad that although the last 30, 40 years of, of economic history have brought forth a lot of you know, GDP growth and everything, it's left a lot of people behind. Uh, and there is a quote from, I think, Lisa Nandy MP, yeah, the Labour MP for Wigan, about how like trying to explain to people that Brexit would hit GDP and, and you just said, they responded with, well, that's your GDP, not ours. I think there is a sense that even though a lot of the top line figures look really good, a lot of people down there on the ground have not felt the benefit. You guys have just done a, a big piece of research on, on inclusive growth. How do we get it? What do we do here? <laughs> like how, how do we make sure that our cities are growing in such a way that like, no, it's you know, no, no, no employee left behind? Well, you've jumped to the difficult question there, John, because you know, like, like world peace, who wouldn't want inclusive growth? And the number of different cities that are creating inclusive growth strategies and talk about how, how you know, it's not just about growth, it's about making sure that everyone's brought along, which is really very noble and very important. And we should definitely be thinking about that and trying to understand how we do it. But of course, the problem is, I think, is that we don't really give a great deal of time to understand how we deliver that. And I think we get some grand statements about, about inclusive growth, but not really anything concrete about how we achieve it. Ultimately, that then means that the people that we are then trying to help 
are not being helped by just these grand statements. We want something more underneath that. So this research looks into uh, trying to understand, well, what does growth look like across the country? You know, cities generally, you know, people have this idea that they're these big agglomerations that create high-skilled jobs but don't necessarily help low-skilled people. So we said, well, let's look at how cities create jobs for low-skilled people. How does that play out across the country? And what we find, actually, is that those cities that are more successful, you might sort of see as being, you know, these big agglomerations with lots of high-skilled jobs, they're the ones that best deliver, deliver jobs for low-skilled people too. They actually best deliver inclusive growth. Whereas it's those cities further north where actually they don't really sort of deliver inclusive growth particularly well. Um, and that's the challenge. It's, it's, it feels terribly unfair that like, you know, even the cities that don't have vast numbers of high-skilled jobs are not great for low-skilled workers. It's kind of like people are getting stuffed here, aren't they, really? But that's, the, that's exactly the problem, is that it's the, it's the struggles of these cities to attract in higher-skilled jobs, which is then not only affecting you know, jobs at the top end, but is then affecting the, the number of jobs throughout the labour market. And what we see is that you know, in order to get inclusive growth, first what you've got to have is growth. And I think almost we sort of put the cart before the horse in, in some of these places that we go, we need an inclusive growth strategy. So, well, actually, first, we need a growth strategy to start off with. And then we can think about how we try and fairly spread out those, those proceeds from the growth. But if there's nothing there to, of, or very little there to spread out in the first place, then you get the reaction of, of say, people saying, not my GDP, I don't see this, this benefit. Because ultimately, it's the whole place that's not getting the growth. And that's the challenge. Okay, let's unpack some of this, uh, some of the, the, sort of the numbers you've produced in this report. You found, right, that like higher skill, you know, cities that attract higher skilled jobs also generate more jobs for, for you know, lower down the labour market. Why is that? So there's this thing called the multiplier effect, which is effectively, if you attracted a, a, an exporting type business, you know, a business that sells to many different markets that could locate anywhere, but then sticks its pin in the map. Attracting one of those businesses in, uh, which are more productive, brings money into the local economy. They sell to many different markets, that money comes in, wages are then paid, money goes in, in workers' pockets, and then that raises demand for things like cafes, bars, shops, restaurants, this sort of thing, you know, demand for local services. So effectively what's going on is by attracting in these exporting type businesses, especially high-skilled ones, you know, you're creating demand for, for local service that creates employment. Now, what are the figures on this? So we estimate that if you, if you attract in 10 jobs in exporting businesses of any skill level, then it'll create 11 jobs in, local, in low, low skill local services. So that's great. That's a 11 jobs created in, in low skill type activities in local services. However, if you attract in a higher skilled exporter, you know, your, your marketing, your consultants, your finance, your law, they create, so 10 of those jobs create 17 jobs in local services. So that multiplier effect, you know, that ability to not only attract in sort of, you know, certain types of jobs in one part of the economy, but then the impact it has elsewhere in the economy is much higher for high school businesses. Why is that? Because they bring in more money from around the world, they pay higher wages, they put more money in, in workers' pockets, which increases demand more for local services. And that's how this mechanism works. So what you then see is in places like, like Reading, like, like Slough, like Milton Keynes, you tend to see that Unemployment rates for low-skilled people are lower, so they're more likely to be in work than what they are elsewhere in the country. But interestingly, actually, they're also likely to be in a higher-skilled job themselves too. 
So this element of it's not just about getting a job in these sorts of places, but it's actually the escalator of being able to sort of climb the uh, climb the career ladder by mm. being in a more successful place. That is, you're much more likely if you're low skilled to be in a higher skilled job in some of these more successful cities than you are if you're uh, located perhaps in a less successful one. Okay, just a sort of side note on that. If you are in a higher skilled job, in what way are you low skilled? Like, how are we defining these things? So Do you literally just mean like don't have a piece of paper saying you learn this stuff at school? Well, indeed. You know, a lot of a lot of this measurement comes down to what qualifications have you got? And I think we we use skills and qualifications interchangeably, perhaps unfairly, because that's what the data looks like. Yeah. Interestingly, I think it's the element of you know, the same cohort of people, you know, the people who've got this same piece of paper or perhaps don't have a piece of paper, as the case may be, you know, the outcomes for these people are better in, or employment outcomes are better in stronger places than what they are in weaker places. And therefore, you know, what we, or what we know is that the key route out of poverty is work. You know, that's the key barrier. And you can then have arguments about how much the pays and things like that. But the first, the first milestone is, are you in work? And what we know is that more successful places are much better able to provide work for lower school people than what less successful places are. So what are the policy implications of all this? I mean, it sounds to me like basically what we should do is like, you know, should we be giving up on like some of these northern cities and just say like, let's just get around in Reading, really? Is that <laughs> is that where we're going here? What's well, the... I would say actually quite the opposite. I think there's a... Um, oh, thank God for that. that would be bloody awful. <laughs> I think it's more of a case of, you know, having to ask some more fundamental questions about weaker economies. You know, mainly cities in the north who are laudably creating inclusive growth strategies is that, yes, you know, think about how you get people who are perhaps quite a distance away from the labour market into work. We have to do that. But ultimately, we've got to get demand going first. We've got to get jobs into our economies first. What are the strategies for doing that? What's the plans to try and improve the economy? Do that first, grow the size of the pie, and then we've got much more to work with when it's a case of trying to share that pie out. So it's very much about keeping the focus on the economy. How, how do we try and make ourselves more attractive to business investment, particularly investment from exporting type businesses? And that will then start to, to turn the tide in terms of the number of job opportunities that are available for people at the top end of the labour market and the bottom. Now, no. I've sort of painted a bit of a picture here to suggest that everything is, is all rosy and successful cities for, for lower-skilled people. That is definitely not the case. The big challenge for, for lower-skilled people in, in, say, places like Reading is that, yes, there are lots of jobs there, but also it's really expensive to live there. And so the challenge for these sorts of places is that if you're thinking about inclusive growth in your areas, yes, it is, again, thinking about skills, because that is the biggest barrier to anybody getting to work. But then it's thinking about housing policy. Your route to deliver inclusive growth is about building more houses. It's not about, you know, special schemes, which might be sort of an employment project to try and get somebody, you know, further the labour market. It's actually making sure we're not pricing these people out. And crucially, those people that might want to move to Reading, if they so wished, could then move in and get access to the opportunity that is there. I mean, I'm entirely in favour of this building more houses thing, as you, you probably know about me. And I imagine the listeners are too. But like one thing I'm still not quite clear on is like you talk about, OK, we, you say we need to be growing the pie in some of these cities with, with a lot of lower skilled people. How? Like, how do we do that? What do we do? That's the really tough question that we need to, to focus on. We have to think about why is it that businesses locate where they do if you're a high-skilled business, you're locating somewhere where you can get the workers that you require in terms of their different skill levels, which may be different to qualifications, their different skill levels. And it's also about you know the, how good is the planning policy, how good is local transport to link workers to jobs, these sorts of things. 
So policy needs to be addressing those sorts of how well their cities perform on these different measures. So skills is the big one. You know, have you got loads of people with no formal qualifications at all? If the answer to that is yes, pretty much your economic development strategy should be around how you try to change that. You know, never mind all the other stuff. If you've got if you've got a third of people, let's say, that don't have any any piece of paper at all, we're going to have to deal with that. How do you go about dealing with that? Well, that's through better provision of further education. I think it's about improving schools firstly, but a lot of people have left school already. So it's about how do you try and improve the provision of further education? How much money is your further education colleges getting? How are your apprenticeships working within your local area? What does demand to take up for these types of courses look like? And do you need to try and drum up demand by either working with people directly or working with businesses and getting them to, to get some of their workers into some of these courses? So that's where you would start. Then you would ask questions about provision of office space or other employment space within your city. Is it appropriate? Is it not? What does a local transport system look like? Is it linking people to jobs? They're the things that each individual place needs to address, particularly through its local industrial strategy. And crucially, that will vary from place to place, but that's where you need to start. Okay, so all nice and simple then. I think we're all clear Easy. on what we're going to do. We'll, we'll see. All be done by tomorrow. Yeah, we'll, okay, we'll fix that. And we'll see you back here this time next podcast. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Berhan, you, as, as people will probably have gathered from your accent, you grew up in Glasgow. That's right. Tell us a bit about the moss of your childhood. Like, what what kind of places were you in the communities of the worship? Uh, I grew up in quite a working class part of Glasgow, so there, were, there weren't that many public spaces nearby. Certainly in those days, unlike now, the Asian community was kind of centred in one particular part of town, certainly for like the first 10 years of my life. So my memory of those early mosques were converted Victorian terraces where people in the summer would even pray out in the back garden, you know. The front garden had usually been kind of demolished to allow for like parking, you know. And in some of these places, as the size of the community grew, even now there are parts of Glasgow where on a Friday, for example, every street for like a half mile radius is just jammed full of cars. Mm -hmm. And like these terraces have been like knocked down, the, the, the adjoining walls have been knocked down and they've been kind of expanded. And it wasn't really until like the late 70s, early 80s that there was a kind of feeling that, okay, now is definitely the time to like build our own space. I think many Muslims had initially thought they would only stay here for 10 years and they would go back. But by that point, they'd already been here for 20. There was a, there was a drive to buy a plot of land in kind of quite an amazing space just outside the city centre. There was a bit of funding that came from like local government and central government. And then the vast majority of the mosque was built using uh, donations. This is something I find quite interesting is that all this had to be organised by the community itself because there's kind yeah. of no sort of institutional equivalent to the Church of England or something. You know, it, people just have to get together and organise this stuff for themselves. Yeah, so there's usually like a kind of a trust or an advisory board, you know. And then these are usually, historically, they were always made up of like either people who had lived in that city for the longest or people who were seen to have prospered the most in their time in a city like Glasgow, you know. It's incumbent on all Muslims to give away a certain proportion of their annual salary to charity anyway. And so some of that money was used. And then also like in mosques, in small mosques around Glasgow, like charitable donations that were taken on Fridays were kind of funneled back into helping this mosque grow. And then actually there were, there were people arriving at, it, it was not unsurprising to have someone come to your house and in my case, ask my parents for money, for donations. Sounds like the Labour Party. Yeah. 
And you know, you've seen. Uh, you, I'm, I'm, I gather you've, you've you've seen a lot of mosques. How typical is the one we're sat in right now? What is what is kind of normal about it? What is unusual about it? Oh, this is really unique. I mean, I first read about this a few months ago, and I guess. You know, I think the interesting thing to me is that, like, it's traditional to some degree, but also it's incredibly modern. You know, like the the amount of light, the amount of available light to the open space, it kind of speaks to it speaks to the street outside. So anyone can walk in and mm. take a tour. You know, and I think like that. I mean, I'm sure Tim would agree, but I think if you have the available resources, this really should be the direction of travel for like mosque architecture. You know. I think what seems to be quite difficult is that generally in other parts of the UK, planning permission is really hard to get because there isn't the structure that you mentioned. Finances are quite difficult to come by as well. You know, like in working class communities, it would be very difficult to achieve something like this. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sort of strike me that Cambridge is, to be bluntly, quite a rich area compared to to, to a lot of the areas in, in Britain with large Muslim populations like Bradford. So I wonder if that's kind of made it easier to get a project on this scale off the ground. It made it easier to get it off the ground, but local communities by no means are able to cover the entire build cost, £24 million of this uh, ambitious project. So it's been a global effort, really. And we've had, most recently, our principal donors have come from Turkey, who in many ways have been kind of ideal partners because they don't try to interfere in annoying ways, but the money has come regularly. It's a raft of private and public donors in Turkey, and without their help, uh, the Cambridge Muslims wouldn't have been able to get something really ambitious like this off the ground. Out of interest, though, why? why? What, is the, what is the connection that means that people in Turkey want to be funding a mosque in the east of England? I think it's not the East of England factor, it's the Cambridge factor. Mm. Cambridge is this kind of iconic, magical name. It's the, the capital of modernity in a certain sense, you know, Newton and Darwin and so forth. All of the big sort of troublemakers in the eyes of traditional religion have, have come from here. So to have a mosque here that affirms a mutual positive symbiosis between East and West, that the West has influenced the Islamic world, but the Islamic world is also contributing to the skyline of this sort of iconic uh, British scientific city and embracing so many aspects of modernity. It's not a traditional building. Is I think, an important gesture that many in Turkey uh, feel very much at home with. They feel that Islam is misunderstood. The idea of the clash of civilizations is not an idea they can buy into. So they've been really happy to, to support this scheme. I was going to ask, it's, so some of the funding came from Turkey. I also understand some of the funding came from Qatar as well. In, were there other countries involved too? The only two countries that have been involved in any kind of official capacity have been Qatar and Turkey. We've had lots of donations from people from other countries, but that's been private individuals. Right. Uh, Qatar was from the government? It was a part of the Qatari National Fund, as I understand it, which right. is kind of a quango. Right. They're quite big on soft power, the Qataris, aren't they, with the, you know, the, the media outreach and the World Cup and so this on. This is true, but to be fair to them, at no point have they suggested that we change our policy or do anything at all that um, we might not want to do already. Tell us a little bit more about the, the decor, because it's, I mean, apart from everything else, it's quite a, a lot of effort has clearly gone into the design here and the decorations. Because this is billed as Europe's first significant eco-mosque, we have a lot of features that are part of the sort of art architectonic wholeness of the building that allude to nature. Nature not just as dumb matter, but as something that speaks 
of the existence of the creator and of beauty as being something that points to the presence of order behind the rough surface of created things. So it's a theological building. So you can see that these trees, which are really the great feature of the, the interior areas, which are these pine-engineered timber supports that go up and link earth, as it were, with the canopy of heaven by bringing to the surface the inherent geometry of things, that the world is not a chaotic mass of meaninglessness, but it has algebra, physical constants, mathematics as part of the structure of existence, which from a theological point of view indicates that there is an ordering principle behind the, the apparent messiness of the world. So you can see as these huge, wonderful wooden trees sweep up above us, uh, they branch out and form a pattern which is a kind of marriage of the, uh, the, the English Gothic King's College Chapel and those other amazing stone masterpieces with the Islamic love of patterns and lattices and arabesques. So the building itself encapsulates in its design idiom the message of the mosque, which is the harmonious interaction of East and West and the English and the Islamic. And as you can see, it is actually done in a very peaceful way. All of the spaces are very serene and very holy, and yet also recognisably modern. There isn't another building anywhere in the world that, that is remotely like this. So it's, it's an ideological building, but it's about building bridges, it's about harmony, it's about reconciliation. But because architecture is not really a polemical art, it's like music, you just kind of enjoy it and absorb it. Uh, I think it makes that case for better understanding between narratives in a particularly peaceful and successful way. The brick as well, which we observed, is a mixture of the local Victorian uh, patterned brick of these railway terraces which surround us with Islamic traditions of creating calligraphic motifs out of patterned brick. So if you look at the brick patterns on the building, if your Arabic is up to scratch, you can actually read verses of the Quran just by looking at the walls. So it's a kind of ideological building. It's saying no to the usual narrative of clash of civilizations and distinction and apartness. It's saying the English and the Islamic narratives have so much in common. They've interacted in the past. Uh, and here is a building where they can harmoniously get together and know each other and produce something that is, I think, really spectacular. And you've got these uh, 12 sort of disc panels mm -hmm. in, in the main prayer hall that's... Yep that uh, you've got a Turkish calligrapher who's going to be yep. great for you. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, possibly the world's greatest Islamic calligrapher who's done many enormously important projects, such as the new mosque in Moscow, for instance. He really is a master craftsman, has promised us uh, many of the calligraphic decorations in the building, which haven't arrived yet. But when we walked around the, the prayer hall, you saw these holes in the wall and the naked timber. Uh, the idea is that because he's not able to travel to the UK, he is receiving these wall-shaped discs in his studio in Istanbul and producing these golden calligraphic wonders. And they'll be shipped up from Turkey in a truck, hopefully before the Brexit deadline, because who knows yeah, what that will that do way. to yeah. trucks at Dover. We don't well, know. who knows when but, that deadline is at this stage. Yeah, it, it, yeah, so that's another imponderable. But they will be amazing. And then hopefully the size will be right. They'll just slot into those those spaces and we'll have something that's more recognisably Islamic. I, I just love the fact that you couldn't you couldn't get him to come here, so you sent bits of the wall to him. I just think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, it, it's frustrating, but he is a master craftsman mm. and it's going to be great. I was going to say, we should probably mention this 12 of these windows, right? And they're quite sizable. Yes. Uh, this, is one, a big, this is a big undertaking. These holes in the wall are 1.8 metre in diameter. So these are very large discs. Mm. And he's going to 
produce his uh, calligraphic motifs on that space and hopefully we will be able to slot them in without any difficulty and then the building will be complete. We should probably be wrapping up. I hope you don't mind, but I think we should probably ask you, would you do this again? Okay, that's a good point would to end on. Would you do it again? Yeah, okay. I mean, this is a huge undertaking, right? Yep. Like, this is arguably, unless you're thinking about changing careers, like, this is the largest thing you will ever be in terms of its size. It's the largest, like, building project you'll probably ever under undertake. So would I do this again? Most of the great things about the project were unexpected at the outset. The fact that the local community is so excited, the fact that we're able to incorporate all of these sort of bridge building exercises and interfaith and shared cafeteria and to overcome the, the, the myth of, of polarity has been really reassuring. Uh, we've had our first wedding here. Seeing the really old people who came to Cambridge, maybe in the 50s and 60s, to run tandoori restaurants or taxi companies or whatever, for the first time coming into a mosque of their own and kind of looking at it uh, with tears in their eyes, the first prayer we had, many people were in tears, has been very rewarding. The flip side of it is, of course, dealing with contractors and subcontractors and the endless problems of a major innovative build, because there isn't another building like this in the UK and we're all learning, has been a big headache for me. Whether I would do it again, I think I would certainly know who to choose to run the second project of this kind, but I wouldn't wish to do it myself. You wouldn't project manage it again? I would not, no. <laughs> but, if, but if anybody out there is hoping to build a new mosque, then you're the man to speak to. Well, we've, I hope that we have created a new benchmark for mosque design, maybe even for religious building design in, in Europe, something that's inclusive, that embraces all of the disparate trends in our rather scatty and anxious society, something serene that brings people together, that deals with the gender issue, that deals with the them and us mentality, that is kind of a peaceful fist of defiance against people on all sides who wish there to be polarities and misunderstanding. Uh, I think it's an important symbol of that, and I hope other mosques will follow suit and see themselves as symbols of inclusion and bridge building. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.